are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The country is still processing the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn the historic 1972 Roe v. Wade decision that granted federal protection to women seeking an abortion. At a post-decision rally last Friday in front of Oahu's federal building, reactions run the gamut from sorrow to fear to rage. There's been a lot of focus and emphasis on Hawaii, that we don't have to worry as much because abortion has been legal here for a long time, before Roe v. Wade in 1970, and there's measures already in place so that if Roe was overturned, like it has been, um, Hawaii would keep abortion safe and legal. Unfortunately, that's not enough. We need to have abortion access for all women, no matter where they live. Just thinking about women who no longer have control over their own body, the most fundamental basic right to tell women they cannot make the most important decision that will affect their lives is outrageous. Women's bodies are being criminalized, are being locked up by this Christian theocracy in the Supreme Court. It's evil and it's disgusting. And I'm here as a queer man because I want to stand in solidarity. I'm here because our collective liberation is tied up together. We need to stand in solidarity. I know as a queer man myself, what's next? Are they going to criminalize gay marriage? Are they going to prevent me from loving who I want to love? There is also a significant segment of the population that applauded the action, some for personal and religious reasons, others for legal ones. Jim Hochberg is an Oahu attorney and president of Hawaii Family Advocates. He sat down with the Conversations Russell Subiano to talk about how the decision legally affects Hawaii. You've had some time to read over the Supreme Court's decision. What are your initial thoughts? And my initial thoughts are we have the worst representation in Congress possible. Our congressional representatives are chicken little with their sky is falling when in Hawaii nothing is going to change whatsoever. Our congressional representatives should have been like the governor of New York and the politicians in California who also aren't going to see any change as a result of the Dobbs case, but instead our congressional representatives have to be screaming about how bad it's going to be for the people in Hawaii because of the Dobbs case. Nothing is changing here. I believe Hawaii allowed for abortions prior to Roe versus Wade. Hawaii allowed for legal abortions by statute in 1970, more than two years, almost three years before the court ruled that somehow the Constitution created a right to abortion in the Roe v. Wade case and Doe v. Bolton. But then again, in 2006, when Governor Lingle was the governor, the Hawaii legislature put again into the statutes the same right to abortion, and that statute's still on the books. Nothing is changing in Hawaii at all, and our congressional representatives should be trying to create a peaceful environment in our lovely state rather than getting people all upset about something that might be in some other state, but it certainly isn't here. And speaking of other states, there's some concern this will cause a lot of legal chaos in states now that access to abortion will be determined by the individual state. Do you have an idea of what that chaos will look like? I don't think it would be chaos at all. Instead of chaos, what do you think will happen? All the Supreme Court did in the Dobbs case is give the people of the United States of America back their right to legislate abortion, which was taken away by the Supreme Court in 1973 with the Roe v. Wade case and the Roe v. Bolton case. And what's really interesting is all the way back to 1850, and this is actually referenced in the Dobbs decision by the majority opinion, Hawaii in 1850 had a criminal statute making abortion a crime. And they have an appendix that goes through every state and territory showing what the historical approach to abortion was before the Supreme Court magically created the right to abortion. I know you've represented religious groups in the past, including in 2017 when Hawaii passed what is now Act 200. It required pregnancy centers to disclose comprehensive and unbiased information about pregnancy options, including abortion. 
Do you have a sense as to how the pro-life movement or religious organizations who oppose abortion, do you have a sense as to how they're receiving this decision? I can't really talk on behalf of anybody else, but I have been saying for quite a long time that within the framework of even the Roe v. Wade federal mandate protecting the right to abortion, which is now returned to the states, there are laws on the books in Hawaii that need to be enforced, and now they need to be enforced without the excuse by the legislature that there's a right to abortion in the U.S. Constitution, so we can't enforce those. And those things include making sure that if a girl gets pregnant and she's underage, that it's reported as a statutory rape if the statutory rape laws apply. Secondly, there's a law in the statutes in Hawaii, it's been for a very long time, that abortion results are known as fetal deaths and they need to be reported to the Department of Health. That needs to be enforced. It's needed to be enforced for many years. There could be new statutes in Hawaii, like parental consent laws, where our legislature should protect the family unit and allow parents to have advance notice of their minor children who are pregnant and getting abortions or whatever. That's a new law that could be passed. I don't know who's going to do what, but the bottom line is now our legislators don't have the excuse they used to have with the uh, federal supposed constitutional right to uh, abortion. We know that the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, is the is the highest court in our country. But do you think that there could still be future legislation to reinstate a version of the protections granted by Roe versus Wade? Or, or legally, does this mean that there could never be that level of protection again? Hawaii has that right this minute. Any other state whose elected representatives want to legislate in a state law the protections of Roe v. Wade, they are free to do so at their own political peril, but it depends on where you live. If you live in California, if you live in Hawaii, if you live in New York, you have the kind of politics that are very pro-abortion, and that's why those three states, including ours, has statutes that legalize abortion without regard to the Roe v. Wade, Doe v. Bolton history of, of constitutional opinions from the Supreme Court. So it's not something that could happen in the future. It exists today. And much has been made of Justice Alito's opinion, which seems to cite every version of past criticism of Roe versus Wade. What are your thoughts on what he used as the basis for his opinion? If you remember back when the first 1973 Roe and Doe cases were issued, they were highly criticized by constitutional scholars for failing to be constitutional law opinions, but instead the Supreme Court majority, five to four, replacing the Texas statutory law on abortion with their own idea of what the legislation should be. That's what it was at the time. And it's been that way ever since. And just like when the country had separate but equal laws for racial segregation, that can't be done, but, well, it can be done. It was done by the court. It ought not to be done by the court. And all Justice Alito has done is gone through what the Roe and the Doe Supreme Court should have done in their constitutional legal analysis, which they did not do, in which they were heavily criticized by constitutional scholars at the time for failing to do, which is apply constitutional principles according to the way they're supposed to be applied, not acting as a super legislature. There's also some worry that this will create a snowball effect where other rights will be taken away from marginalized groups like the LGBTQ community. Do you think that's a legal possibility as well? Anybody who believes that's a possibility needs to actually read the opinion because the majority opinion expressly addresses that. And I'll read it to you. He says, the abortion right is critically different from these other rights that the court has held to fall within the 14th Amendment's protection of liberty. Abortion is fundamentally different 
as both Roe and Casey acknowledged, because it destroys what those decisions called, quote, fetal life, close quote, and what the law now before us describes as, quote, unborn human being, close quote. So if anybody believes that's true, they should read the opinion because they're chicken little. The sky is not falling. That was Oahu attorney Jim Hochberg talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about what comes next after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade on Friday. You are tuned to the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking of a pair of iconic buildings in Honolulu's Chinatown and the origin of the materials used to build them. The T.R. Foster Building, built in 1891, and the Royal Salon Building, opened in 1890, are recognized today as the popular Irish pubs Murphy's and O'Toole's, respectively. The haunts are cornerstones of Chinatown's storied bar culture and the, uh, through different uh, iterations have been serving stiff drinks to sailors, maritimers, and passers-by for generations. In fact, the pair of buildings are among the few to survive the fires of 1900 that leveled most of the neighborhood. One of the most unique features of these two buildings are the red bricks used to build them, bricks that were not made here in Hawaii. For today's quiz, can you tell us where those red bricks used to construct these buildings came from? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NareedHawaii.com. This Thursday, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is scheduled to take the oath of office as the next president of the Philippines. One journalist who will be watching closely is Maria Ressa. She won the Nobel Peace Prize last fall for using freedom of expression to expose abuse of power, use of violence, and growing authoritarianism in her native country. Ressa is in Honolulu this week, giving the keynote address at an international media conference put on by the East-West Center. Earlier this morning, she sat down with HPR's news director and her former colleague at CNN, Bill Dorman. Maria, thanks so much for coming in this morning. Congratulations on the Nobel Peace Prize for one thing and other well-deserved international recognition for your work. But to start off this morning, you leave here on Thursday. When you get back to Manila, there's going to be a new government in power. What are your expectations heading into a new administration there? I'm keeping my expectations wide open. I mean, in a strange way, the last few years, and you know, based on our investigations, going back to 2014, we've seen our history changed in front of our eyes. You know, I, I became a journalist in 1986 when, uh, when people power ousted the Marcos family, Ferdinand Marcos, and over the from 2014 to the May 9th elections, we slowly watched history change and 
disinformation or information operations changed Ferdinand Marcos from a hero, from a pariah to a hero. And that's pretty incredible, right? So now you have Ferdinand Marcos Jr., his only son and his namesake, taking over at a pretty difficult time globally. You know, his track record... um, it's there's nothing that's stellar about it. What he's had to do is really field questions about the Marcus name. And from what I can see, he has two options. You know, he either becomes like his father or he vindicates the Marcos name. And I certainly hope he takes the second track. So very open in terms of what the government will do. I think there are a lot of Filipinos who want a sense of justice because the family was accused of stealing $10 billion in 1986 numbers. And if you go by what the Philippine government has recovered of that money, you're talking less than $4 billion back, right? So that's how much the government has recovered in 36 years. But now you have a Marcos back. Will he run after his family's wealth? I don't know. But if he does, that would be a very pleasant surprise. Um, it's, yeah, it's still stunning sometimes. I'm, I just, we're in it. We voted overwhelmingly. Filipinos voted overwhelmingly, you know. And this reminds me of, of I, I think we're emblematic of the dangers of disinformation, the dangers of social media run rampant, the kind of technology that has become a behavior modification system. And then, you know, it's not just that. I mean, certainly it's a perfect storm. It's the lack of, it's it's the fact that the trickle-down ideas of the economy didn't trickle down, that people want in a very complex world simple answers. And we've, we've seen the rise of digital populists. Ferdinand Marcos Jr. campaigned a nothing but one word, unity. I was going to say, when in the local media in, in the Philippines now, in terms of expectations, unity is probably the most used word that you see coming through. Well, in his first campaign rally announcing his his candidacy for president, right, in 20 minutes, he used the word unity 21 times. Not many details of how mm. we get there, but... It was enough to capture the imaginations of Filipinos, millions. Um, And so the other part, of course, is that goes hand in hand with disinformation, which is, you know, you walk into a poor neighborhood in the Philippines and and many of them will tell you they voted for Marcos because of the Taliano gold. This is a lie that was um, on, on YouTube, then spread on Facebook. They believe that if they voted for Marcos, they would get gold, hmm. right? That's not going to happen. Um, so look, I, I don't, I'm still struggling with how to move forward in this world where facts are debatable. This is a problem for all of us, Bill. It is, fa- debatable facts is an issue. We're going to get back to, to more of that. On to you a bit. You were born in Manila. Your parents left in the 70s under when, martial law. Yes, after you, martial law was declared. You grew up in Toms River, New Jersey, where they just named an auditorium after you in the public school, which is so great. Um, went to Princeton, went back to the Philippines as a Fulbright scholar in the mid-80s. Corey Aquino came to power in 1986. Uh, in the early days of the People Power Revolution, you covered that for CNN. I was also working there at the time. But... Talk a bit about what that time was like for you. Yeah. First, it's really special to talk to you because it reminds me of, you know, I think we lived through the golden age of journalism. And uh, 1986 down, you know, it was a time of such great optimism. I don't know if you remember this, but so most of my career in Southeast Asia covered the rise of democracy, starting with the Philippines, Mm. and then, you know, went all the way through. I think I went from a privileged time with CNN to go from these countries with authoritarian one-man rulers shifting to democracy after that. You even had like Singapore moving from Lee right. Kuan Yew, uh, all of, of this, Suharto. the fall of we Suharto. Were yeah. We were there together, and that was 1998. You know, it, was, it seemed like democracy was unstoppable. The values were clear. We were moving to, we were lifting kind of the oppression, and you can see the 
impact of oppression after the fall of Suharto in 1998. So that was after nearly 32 years in power. What Suharto did was he he pushed down all of the conflict that you couldn't talk about Sara in Bahasa Indonesia. It's it's ethnic conflict, racial conflict. And because they did that in many ways, right after he, the fall of Suharto, I spent the next two years up until East Timor, the newest country in our part of the world. You know, it's like I went from city to city to city and it would be five types of violence, um, uh, ethnic, religious, I don't remember, Ambon, yes. Muslims versus Christians, Separatist violence, political violence, economic violence. So it felt like if you oppress sooner or later, like in a person's life, if you suppress, it pops up. So that's what happened. Um, I just hope we're not walking into another period of history. And I, I think what's scarier for me is this is global, where where we're ready, because the world is so complex, each of us, we're ready to bury our heads and give up our rights, just for a sense of uh, peace, I think, more than anything, you know? And almost the scary part is convenience works in there and and works with with apathy and a a lot of other factors. That was uh, HPR's Bill Dorman talking with Nobel Peace Prize winner Maria Ressa. We'll have more of that discussion in just a moment. Record high gas prices, interest rate hikes, a tight jobs market, inflation at a 40-year high. The real pressures of today, war and pandemic, start to collide with the financialization of certainly the last 15 years, if not the last 40. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. HBR's Bill Dorman sat down this morning in our studios with journalist Maria Ressa, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2021 for her work in that of the news organization she created, Rappler. Bill Dorman asked about what led her to start that operation a decade ago. Let me get to some other specifics about you, though, because you have done so much um, in this time. Ten years ago, you founded Rappler, which is an online news organization, original content. It's got an investigative arm. Of course, it covers basketball very heavily, very popular (laughs) in the Philippines. Um, We'll get to coverage of the war on drugs in a minute. But what led you to start Rappler ten years ago? You could see the internet was taking over at that point, right? So after I left CNN, and I was with CNN for almost two decades, um, I went, I chose home. I didn't know where home was. Mm. And so I decided, I felt like if I had gone back to the United States that I would be reporting on on institutions falling apart. In the Philippines, I felt like we were still building. We were just building institutions, and I wanted to be a part of that. So I came back, and I headed the largest news organization there, ABS-CBN, which in May 2020 lost its franchise. So the second time it's been shut down, um, it's Anyway, so <laughs> I can I can talk a lot about this, um, uh, and and I guess like what I was after was home. Where is home? And when I chose to come home to the Philippines, I thought I had real experience from the time at CNN. I could. The goal was to turn ABS-CBN international, right? And we know how tough that is to mm-hmm. be local and yet to be connective tissue to the world, because yes. most of the time we. We want to only know about what affects us. And that's correct. Like, I was with a Ukrainian journalist who, who said, in Ukraine today, news is survival. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Philippines, part of the reason journalists were held in such high esteem before was because our institutions were so weak that you needed the news. If mm-hmm. you didn't, it's not just about traffic or the weather, right? right? So it impacts you directly. Um, well, since then, a lot has changed. So anyway, we started Rappler because 
you could see something was different with technology. And most legacy news organizations would put their third string, right? So when I was handling ABS-CBN, our primetime newscast is the main revenue generator. So you put your best people there, and then you put your youngest and your third string on the internet. But social media was just starting. And in ABS-CBN, I wanted to embrace this technology, like mobile phone, that this is something... I mean, my gosh, I think even before any news groups in the United States was using mobile phones, Filipinos were already, we were the SMS capital of the world, right? right. right? So we adapted to this technology. I felt like what we learned in traditional legacy news groups is efficiency. When I was managing ABS, that's what I did. Gantt charted, I had had industrial engineers follow each position, so I knew. So you manage for efficiency, you try to keep the mission alive for your people as they as they do their jobs but managing for the internet is a whole other thing there was this whole and and i'm gonna go back to things that seem outdated today uh participatory collective action you know where the journalist gives up some power to gain more power Uh, and when the largest news organization does that it's pretty transformative we started this in abs-cbn and then with rappler i wanted to play with tech with technology you know because tech code in the hands of journalists who have standards and ethics is very different from the hands of someone like YouTube or Facebook, people whose goals are to keep you scrolling. Um, We have standards and ethics. We can't insidiously manipulate. It's very easy to have done some of the techniques that they do, but you don't. Because in the end, we have always protected the public sphere. So uh, the reason for Rappler, Social network analysis. You know, I started working on this when we were tracking terrorists in Southeast Asia. I remember that, yes. And that was really, in the end, my second book is called, the title of my second book is From Bin Laden to Facebook. And this transition, right, I began to look at how virulent ideology can spread. And when it spreads online, we started getting these Abu Sayyaf groups asking for their ransom on YouTube. This was 2011. And so I was like, oh my gosh, if they're, if they're going to do things like that, if we already saw how they can recruit on the internet, well, can we use this for good? And that was the idea behind Rappler. The elevator pitch for Rappler was very simple. We build communities of action, and the food we feed our communities is journalism. And so coming back to the Philippines and creating Rappler was really about also trying to understand how collective action can help build institutions bottom up. And we fast forward to the administration of Rodrigo Duterte and his war on drugs. Uh, To quote a piece from Rappler.com, government says more than 6,200 people died at the hands of police as of the end of May of this year. If you include victims of vigilante-style killings, human rights groups put that number at about 30,000. Documents obtained by Rappler show nearly 8,000 deaths, according to Philippine National Police records. how did Rappler get into this story and keep with this story? Because this is what the, the Nobel Peace Prize folks, the committee cited, pointed to this and said, hey, this is ground-level journalistic work that doesn't happen quite as often as maybe it should in the world, and we want to recognize this because this also, talk about gutsy coverage. I, I three ideas here, you know. Um, there's this great Milan Kundera quote, and this can pull out broader, where he said, the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting, right? You can talk about that in terms of the Marcos years to today, but also about the atomization of meaning and how this 30,000 number, so I, I'll tell you, I even have this debate inside Rappler. I no longer have an editorial role in Rappler because when you become the subject of attack like I've become, I didn't want my emotions to get in the way. So I have no, I'm no longer executive editor that went to Glenn DeGloria. Uh, I run our business, our tech, our data. Um, so look, uh, in the drug war, 
the first three years, so that this number of at least 27,000 people killed was from four hours after President Duterte took office in 2016, so that's June 30th, 2016. When he took office, the first killing happened within four hours. And that went all the way. The number is, is from the Commission on Human Rights in the Philippines, and they said it was less than three years by December, right? So 2016, 2017, by December 2018, the estimate of the Commission on Human Rights in the Philippines was at least 27,000, mm-hmm. right? And you mm-hmm. can see the official estimate is now 6,000. Well, by January 2017, it was at 7,000. And then what we saw is the number getting whittled back all the way to like, by 2020, it went 7,000 in 2017 to 5,000, mm-hmm. right? It was like, an accordion and this made me crazy you know we keep track of numbers right yeah. and what are we supposed to do because the police roll back the number we don't ask questions and it's it's cha- again the the ability to change the perception of reality and just redefine reality is a dangerous business for governments to go down and, and unchecked many of them will do so and it is happening everywhere around the world where information operations and and my let's talk the definition of that right where you say a lie a million times right somebody it's like introducing a virus of lies in a closed system you pound a lie a million times there were only 2000 people killed right that was at a time when it was already at 7000 rolled back to 2000 and then you intimidate the news organization so that they go with that number and it's this redefinition. You know, I say it was death by a thousand cuts. It's literally death by a thousand cuts of our democracy. It's this rolling back of reality, right? So you hold on to these numbers. And what we did, imagine, like, there's a page on Rappler where we kept track of the numbers and then the rollback of the numbers. How many people go to that page? Not many, but it's there. So that was how we first began. But the second part is, this is something we used to do at CNN all the time, which is make those numbers real people. Mm. Whether it's 2,000 or 7,000 by January 2017, Amnesty International went with 7,000 because that's what the government said until they realized that if they kept reporting the numbers that way, it was it went against them, right? Mm. It was a double thing because the police needed to report numbers for their own purposes, and yet those numbers, were, when reported nationally and internationally, got them in trouble. So the first casualty in the Philippines battle for truth is the number of people killed. Until today, we have no idea. And that idea that there is much that is still not known is part of what informs journalism on good days from, from here on out. Maria, we could go on for hours, but uh, we're going to leave it there for, for now. Um, I will mention your, your court case. When you accepted the Nobel, you said you had 10 warrants out against you. You mentioned the other night that number's been cut. Some cases have been dismissed. But still, facing situations, you could go to, uh, to prison theoretically for more than 100 years. But we will... Uh, it's kind of like pollution. <laughs> you, know? you just got to live with it and, and breathe. Um, breathe. It, it's, I guess it's less, it, it, in less than two years, I had 10 arrest warrants, so I was out on bail. Three of those cases have now been dismissed. All of these cases I look forward to uh, seeing go away because they never should have made it to court. We look forward to that, too. Um, And on the short term, Maria Ressa, she's keynoting the East-West Center's International Media Conference tomorrow, talking about the battle for facts. You can find out information on that at eastwestcenter.org slash IMC2022 and more information on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. Maria, great to see you again. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the leading Republican candidates in the governor's race. Reporter Blaze Level joins us today. Good morning, Blaze. Hey, good morning, Catherine. Our story this morning, it's up on the site. It's looking at 
these tax cut proposals that some of the top candidates are looking at. You know, as we know, tax cuts have long been a plank of the Republican Party platform, um, and uh, for good reason. It's top of mind for voters who wouldn't want to see some of their taxes and fees dropped. Um, and, I, and I spoke to some of the top Republican candidates about some of those proposals. You know, they want to chip away at certain taxes, taxes specifically those on food and medicine, property, and some of the candidates candidates also want to take a look at income taxes for lower earners. Yes, and your article mentions, uh, you know, what former Republican uh, Governor Linda Lingle ran up against when uh, she took the helm. That's the other side of the coin, right? It's like these candidates can come up with the proposals, and uh, getting elected is a challenge in and of itself. But getting these things through the legislature is another big hurdle. It was Democratic governors would struggle with getting these proposals through. And Lingle, when she came forward with a few of these proposed tax breaks um, about a decade ago, you know, she ran into, or more than a decade ago, she ran into a lot of the same opposition. She got some of what she wanted, but really not all of it. Yeah, so uh, you you went down the list. Uh, you said Heidi Suniyoshi had some of the more, uh, I guess, draconian measures. Well, I don't know that draconian is the way to describe it. She she'd take the biggest bite out of um, Hawaii's biggest uh, batch of taxes. That's a general excise tax. It's a tax that gets levied on all business activities in the state. The rate's about 4%, but counties are, uh, every county except Maui tax on a little bit more, and that, you know, gets passed on to the consumer in the formula of quote-unquote sales tax. Um, she wants to reduce the state GDP by about 50%. That would sure to be almost dead on arrival in the legislature just because of the amount of money, you know, that the state would lose. I think we came up with an estimate of about $2 billion based on the state's, you know, tax projections. Um, but uh, other candidates proposed taking a more measured approach. You know, Gary Cordery, uh, local activist and former Lieutenant Governor Duke Iona, both proposed cutting the GET on food and medicine, essential items that people can't get around. Uh, Iona said that he wants to take a deep dive on these tax brackets and see if, you know, eliminating certain um, uh, uh, income tax categories for those uh, earning low incomes could make more sense. But you need to balance that against, you know, state revenues and how much is it that could cost to benefit the taxpayer in the end. Uh, Gary Cordery uh, proposed a kind of interesting idea to freeze property taxes for homeowners at the time in which they retire. You know, as you know, uh, once you retire, a lot of our kapuna are on fixed incomes, uh, but your property taxes might still be rising. That's something that Cordery said he'd like to take a, a better look at. And what about the uh, uh, state's fuel tax? A lot of the candidates, uh, almost all in fact, proposed uh, a tax holiday for the fuel tax. It's about 16 cents a gallon. They kind of tracked with uh, U.S. President Joe Biden's administration's proposal for a similar tax holiday. I believe the federal tax is about 18 cents. So it's not huge, but you know, it could be saving you a couple of dollars every time you go to fill up at the pump. Well, we hope to talk with uh, the state tax director, uh, Isaac Choi, tomorrow. So we'll have to pick his brain on how he thinks that's going to affect, uh, um, you know, Hawaii's coffers. Uh, and what about B.J. Penn? Yeah, definitely rented by the tax director. Uh, we reached out to B.J. Penn. His campaign said he wasn't available. Uh, but we do reference his uh, response to the candidate questionnaire. Uh, in there, he says he wants to identify solutions to reduce the burden of taxes on individuals and small businesses in the state doesn't elaborate on uh, how you go about doing that though you know and and uh, you you pose this question about the tax cuts you know to the republicans but you know we we know that even the democrats have a hard time uh you know amongst themselves when the governor tries uh, to do something uh so uh you know i mean i, I don't know i mean we, when you look back at the at the success that uh Lindell, lingle had when she proposed some of her ideas? Mm -hmm. it, it's been a hit or miss, and it really still is. I talked to Tommy Amachika, the president of the Hawaii Tax Foundation, and you know he says you can't really go uh, know for sure one way or another how the legislature's gonna go. Sometimes they raise taxes, and other years they take up proposals to cut some taxes, or at least provide some tax relief, particularly for those of, of uh, low incomes. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I know they always talk about cutting positions, right? So uh, I guess we'll we'll have to see, and we'll see who who makes it in in the primary. We'll definitely keep a lookout. All right. Well, thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks again. We've been talking to reporter Blaze Lovell uh, for today's reality check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Did the planet Jupiter consume other planets during the formation of the solar system? Well, astronomer Christopher Phillips joins uh, HBR's Dave Lawrence to talk about it in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into that massive and fascinating universe surrounding our tiny planet. And as usual, we turn to the expertise of Christopher Phillips, astronomer we're so grateful to have on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you got this week for us? Hey, Dave, good to be here. So this week, Stargazers, the planets of Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn continue to be visible at our eastern skies at dawn. The moon this week is passing through its new moon phase, and so conditions will be perfect for stargazing. Now, I understand from your messaging over the weekend, you are just chomping at the bit to talk about this new discovery relating to Jupiter, aren't you? (laughs) It's exciting stuff indeed, yes. (laughs) Scientists using data from NASA's Juno probe may have laid to rest one of the key debates regarding Jupiter's formation. An analysis of the planet's core has shown that Jupiter has a high abundance of heavy elements, the presence of which can only be explained if Jupiter will have to have consumed other planets during the formation of the solar system, an extremely violent era in the history of our solar family. Consuming other planets, that's why Chris likes this story so much. And with the uh, clouds, how are they able to see what's going on with stuff being sort of hidden by that? Well, when it comes to studying the interior of planets, especially rocky planets like the Earth, we normally use instruments called seismometers to get a picture of what's going on beneath the surface. With Jupiter, however, we don't have that luxury. So scientists were able to study data of Jupiter's gravitational field instead. This allowed them to effectively peer inside the planet. And this is not one of those places that we're going to be planning any soon uh, adventures to, right? Because the there's nowhere really to land, is it? <laughs> exactly. There is no solid surface on Jupiter. All our conclusions about how this massive planet formed are inferred using indirect methods, which are no less effective if you have good data. Well, it sort of backs up the concept that things are kind of rough around the solar system in the old days. Little Wild West-ish, huh? It sure was. We see evidence of the violent early history of the solar system just by looking at our own moon, which is completely covered by craters. The early history of the solar system was very much like that game Hungry Hungry Hippos, with young planets (laughs) trying to accumulate as much mass as possible, gobbling up their smaller siblings and devouring the gas and dust that makes up the solar nebula. Not a place I would want to live. And now we know what you're doing on the weekend. Hungry Hungry Hippos, huh? (laughs) It's Christopher Phillips and another fun Stargazer report and informative, too. Thank you so much. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We will catch you next week. You can catch Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. Earlier in today's Backyard Quiz, we reviewed part of Chinatown's architectural history in the Merchant Street Historic District, Honolulu's earliest commercial center. As the area swelled with activity, several now iconic buildings sprang up to accommodate the growing neighborhood, including the Melkers Building, the Bishop Estate Building, and the Kamehameha V Post Office. Also among them, the T.R. Foster Building and the Royal Saloon Building, which were built in the Florentine, Gothic, and Renaissance Revival architecture that characterized much of the neighborhood. Two things that make them unique. One, they both survived the Chinatown fires of 1900. And two, unlike other nearby structures, the bricks used to construct what is now Murphy's and O'Toole's came to Oahu with a very different purpose. They were brought over as ship ballast during the early 19th century, 
which was the answer to today's backyard quiz. But we had no winners today. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. On the next Fresh Air, comedian, actor, and writer Joel Kim Booster. He wrote and stars in the romantic comedy Fire Island, now streaming on Hulu. He has a new comedy special on Netflix called Psychosexual, and he co-stars with Maya Rudolph in the new Apple TV Plus series, Loot. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Putting a halt on some monster homes on Oahu. The city recently revoked uh, building permits for a few structures in East Honolulu and is investigating others. HBR reporter Casey Harlow is here in the studio to talk about it. Good morning. Morning, yes. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, uh, some developments at 3615 Sierra Drive. And if you uh, can remember, we uh, did a story about this uh, last year. Uh, neighbors uh, along Sierra Drive suspected that the owners of this property uh, who tore down this uh, two buildings uh, that were built uh, improperly. Uh, there was a stop work order and they were fined. Uh, they were suspected of building a monster home. Now a year later, their suspicions have been confirmed and the city actually revoked three of their building permits saying that they have uh, violated and falsified uh, information on their uh, permits on the plans. And so have we heard back from the developer, um, the owner, are they going to appeal it? Uh, haven't heard back from them yet. Uh, did uh, reach out uh, through various avenues, trying to uh, get a hold of them, uh, and um, not sure if they are going to appeal it. But city officials do believe they will. Uh, they had ten working days uh, to uh, file an appeal with uh, the Building Board of Appeals, uh, and. Um, We'll see what happens. But as of uh, Friday, uh, they have not appealed uh, yet. Um, and some of the things that were um, that DPP found, the Department of Planning and Permitting found, was that uh, their property had 15 bathrooms and four wet bars under city land use ordinance. Uh, homes are allowed up to nine and a half baths and two wet bars so uh three buildings and that is a uh, pretty huge or what is called a monster home uh council chair tommy waters who represents kaimi key uh and also a resident of kaimi key uh you know had this to say i interviewed him on friday and he was happy that action was taken but also a little bit frustrated as well it's a crime to lie to dpp so what I've asked DPP to look at and try to build a case to show that these unscrupulous home builders lied to DPP and then turn it over to Steve Alm at the prosecutor's office for prosecution. I think, you know, if we were able to build a case against one of these and actually go forward with it, it would have a chilling effect on these folks building these illegal homes. So uh, that was Tommy Waters, and um, he also says that you know their um, invest DPPs investigating other homes in the area. Uh, last week, uh, the DPP uh, issued a stop work order and revoked the permits of uh, a couple buildings at Pokolu uh, Place and uh, Cocoa Head Avenue. Uh, there is which is down the street from the Sierra Drive property. Uh, that house is halfway built, uh, and there was also a notice of violation. Uh, deep on the DPP website, it says that they also falsified information uh, on the plans. And, you know, what? speaking with area residents, they're kind of skeptical of, like, what will happen next. Uh, you know, we've never seen a monster home that was kind of being constructed or almost completed. And uh, what, will ha what will the city do? Uh, there's been a lot of questions about that. Uh, DPP says that the owners or the developers have to resubmit a plan uh, in order that would uh, be in city compliance with the city land use ordinance. Uh, but as the structures stand right now at Sierra Drive, that isn't likely because to resubmit uh, plans, it will come under the current city code, which is that nine and a half bath and two wet bars. But since that's already built, 
uh, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Right. Or, there, there are four. The four structures are, are there on the property, and uh, I know that the, the the NOV issued, you know, said that they didn't have enough side yard, mm-hmm. uh, which was which they're supposed to have. Right. So yeah, big question. Will will the city force them to tear it down there? There was only one incident when I in, incident where I recall the city actually doing that, and that was under a previous uh, land use director. And that was a Palolo temple because it was built too high. Right. And so um, DPP also said, uh, I spoke with them on Friday. They said that, you know, another option is they will have they will be forced to tear down uh, these structures 180 days after receipt of this notification. And, but DPP doesn't have a lot of these uh, inspectors to kind of keep going around uh, the island to make sure that these homes are built to spec uh, on the plans. And even in January, uh, at the Kaimuki Neighborhood Board meeting, uh, Perry Tamayo, who is a chief uh, plans examiner, even had this to say to neighbors. It has to come from the community itself, because we don't have enough inspectors out there to monitor every property or every neighborhood on the island. So with the help of the community is much more important. Uh, we can we can send the inspectors out immediately or follow up on any complaints or any issues that's happening within your in your neighborhoods. And uh, neighborhood board president Sharon Snyder, who uh, didn't believe that you know this is possible because she says that you know it's basically neighbors at, being asked to spy on each other to make sure that they're doing the right thing. Uh, but yeah, the we'll have to wait and see if the Sierra Drive owners uh, appeal uh, the decision, and we'll see what happens with the properties at, on Cocoa Head Avenue and also uh, Pakolu Place. All right. Well, thanks so much, Casey. Thanks. We've been talking to HBR reporter Casey Harlow uh, to read the story. Go to our website, HawaiiPublicRadio.org. That's it for today. Tomorrow we hear how the first shot clinic for children under five uh, as other medical facilities uh, launch efforts to reach out to families with young children. Are you on the fence? Share your thoughts on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. And if you didn't know, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.